everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center weekly seminar series, The Colloquium. My name is Don Rodriguez-Ward, and I co-facilitate this series with Jen Baltzigar. Uh, and we're very excited about our speaker today. Uh, but I, before I get into that, I just wanted to remind you that this is part of a, a spring workshop series called Genes and Society, and it's Decolonizing Human Genetic Research, which is brought to you by a number of institutions the Becoming an Ally in Academics, the Genetics and Genomics Academy, the Genetic Engineering Society Center, and also TRISEM, which is the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine. Um, and the goal of this series is to explore current and historical intersections of racism, systematic inequalities, and human genetic research. And I also just wanted to give a shout out to Martha, because she really is the person who brought this here. It is a team effort, and there's a lot of people here, but also just to, Very good coach. to put that out <laughs> there. Uh, and I also was very, I know this is a two-day event, and you've, you've been going to a lot of different places. I enjoyed, but, but still up and running and, and ready to continue the conversation, so thank you. Uh, I was very honored to go to the fireside chat last night, and... I can tell you that nobody wanted to leave. I mean, we finished it, the questions just kept coming, and nobody wanted to, to leave the auditorium. So I felt like there were a lot, uh, everyone was just kind of listening and, and really inquiring. And so thank you so much for being here. I would like to have one of our students, Amaja Andrews, come and introduce our speaker. And Amaja is a graduate student in anthropology. She's also doing a GES minor. But Jen just did that on the table to remind me if there are any announcements, I obviously never do this correctly. So, Jen, are there any announcements that we want to talk about? Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> have an announcement. Thank you for asking. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, in two weeks, we're going to be in person again here in this room. Um, and Bethany Berkshire, who is a... Bethany's coming. Yes. Who is a science communicator. Um, she's written several public popular science books. Um, she's going to come, and, and for Globe she's going to talk to us about better science writing, but she's also doing two other events. One will be at the library, D.H. Hill, at 4.30 that afternoon, and she's going to do like a book reading. We're going to have um, students from one of the undergraduate clubs, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one, and they'll have um, a snake, you know, which is a pest, because our new book is about mm -hmm. pests and how we determine what's a pest and what's not a pest. Yeah. Um, and then she'll do another event at the Science Museum at night, um, and it'll be um, also about her book, but it'll be a conversation with Mike Cove, who's a mammologist at the museum. So I think that will also be very interesting. And C-SPAN Book TV will be covering that. Um, what? Yes. <laughs> so, if... You watch C-SPAN at 8 a.m. on Sundays. <laughs> you can catch Bethany's Of course, you can catch Bethany's presentation um, at some point. I don't know when that will be. So that's sort of a fun thing. Anyway, we hope to get you know lots of lots of participation. I think she'll be a fun. Um, She's going to do a bunch of us will probably interview. I mean, I, she interviewed me. I bet she interviewed you, um, Jason. I wonder. Um, she interviewed a bunch of us for the book, so I'll be real curious to see yeah. from G-Bird, who worked on G-Bird, so, um, anyway, okay, just sharing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, thank you. And further, also another reminder, people saw our one of our rotating slide deck. Uh, this Thursday to Saturday will be Etsy State's first uh, Black Research Symposium. And uh, at Biofuse, uh, along with uh, two students from Forestry who've started Field Inclusive, will be uh, uh, doing a community conversation about creating safe and inclusive spaces in the field and in the lab. Um, and that's at 3.30 to 4.20 this Friday. But I want to remind you that the symposium is a three-day event, and hopefully you guys, uh, I forwarded some announcements, and hopefully you've seen some of the talks that this is going to be coming up. So also please attend that. And without further ado, Amaja, <laughs> would you? Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the GES Colloquium. Today, we are here to listen to um, the Colonizing Human Genetic Research brought to us by Dr. Latifah Jackson. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Howard University and a member of the William Montague Cobb Research Laboratory, contributing to the Thousand African American um, Genomes Project. Her work focuses on studying African and African American genomes. Uh, in order to understand population structure and race-related health disparities. The impact of personalized medicine is profound, and Dr. Jackson's work creates an expansion of genetic information um, historically missed among minorities to help every population be seen for better health solutions to be produced. Our speaker is an expert in functional genomics, bioinformatics, and evolutionary biology approaches to study genetic patterns that contribute to disease outcomes with a biological anthropology framework, overall using an interdisciplinary approach to expand beyond demographic and genomic points of view in populations. So without holding any of your excitement, please help me in welcoming Dr. Thank you. Before I start, I wanted to thank you guys because it always is really a reflected honor um, to be invited to talk about things that are, you know, near and dear to my heart, which all of us hold our research against. Um, but then also have the opportunity to really commune with so many bright, fantastic, deeply thoughtful people, you know, and um, all of us are in our bubbles, <laughs> in our institutions, in our departments, um, with the research groups that we work with. But when you get a chance to go out, that's really when you kind of fertilize <laughs> the way that you think, expand the way that you think. And I've already had several conversations that have made me think, hmm, I need to, can't wait to get back home and like try a little this and try a little bit of that. And that is really, I think, at the heart of the spirit of intellectual communication and sharing. So I'm deeply grateful for um, the, both the invitation and what you guys have, have allowed me to experience. So I'll start there and then <laughs> I want to tell you guys a little bit about my path. Um, and this is kind of, this is a talk, this is the second time I've ever given this talk. Um, and I say that to say that, you know, as, um, as scientists, we spend a lot of time thinking about our work, and we know what our path was. <laughs> you know, if we're self-aware, we may have made a, what do they call it, a failure CV, you know? Um, but <laughs> we don't spend a lot of time talking about it, like what that path was, right? Um, and I had a lovely conversation with Fred and Martha where we were talking about how it's not a, um, it's not a direct line, but instead it was kind of a random walk, right? <laughs> um, and so I wanted to acknowledge that. And I 
thank them, you know, previously, but also I wanted to tell you guys that, like, science is about, as much about learning from the failures, the mistakes, the opportunities that you don't get, as the opportunities that you do get. Right? Okay. And having said that, let's see if I can use this technology. Okay. So, I'm going to... Uh, take you through a couple of different places. I thought, you know, <laughs> this presentation is hopefully not too heavy on data, although there is quite a bit of data in here. Um, but I thought I would show you guys some, some little things. So this is like the house that I was born in. It's, it's here in Tanzania. Um, my parents, I always had the um, fun fact uh, opportunity to be born on the exact same table as my dad's major professor, who was a um, who was a um, officer of the British Empire, uh, but also a nutritionist at Cornell University. And so, um, while my parents were doing research in Tanzania in the rural bush, like I wasn't even born in a major city, it was really disappointing. Um, <laughs> Uh, my older brother and I were born, and um, and then I'll walk you through sort of some kinds of, of family things because it's important to acknowledge your positionality, and then we'll talk a little bit about science, um, and then talk take a little bit of a cultural dive because taking some cultural dives in my time, and I think that they're really important, and I'll tell you why, and then talk a little bit about evolution. Um, complex diseases and then kind of where I am right now. So let's just go ahead and get started. And Greenland is not that science. Okay, so as I said, that's me! I was very weird. My parents tell me that like I was, I had just recovered from being really sick. Um, and then they took this picture and I'm like, thanks. And so I like to be like, it is what it is, you guys. And this is my mom. Um, back in the bush, she was very skinny. Probably because I was not allowed to eat. Um, but I started out in Tanzania and it is probably one of the most beautiful countries in the world and it's probably one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, and I say that to both tell you that like amazing things come out of unexpected places but also to acknowledge that uh, I also, my parents are Americans. Right, so was born there, but like, here's my mom and dad. Here's my dad with me. We, uh, I came from a family of academics, and I want to really um, emphasize that what your family does, who your family is, what your positionality is, is also important, but it's not determinative, right? And so um, I wouldn't be. Whoops, I wouldn't be. Um, honest if I didn't say that like hey having parents who are academics meant I spent every weekend in a lab thinking that that was totally normal to like <laughs> sweep the floors you know <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'm one of six kids which is why I talk so much sorry and um, feel free to interrupt me because I'm always I'm, I'm used to that that's the normal way um, had a pet pig <laughs> and I thought it was a pet but apparently he was a pilot to a research project. Yeah, I know. I was like, why did he disappear one day? <laughs> it was because he, he was actually went up to the Berkeley Hills and was in a in an animal care facility. 
Um, so we got to visit him there, but he was a beautiful red-headed pig. We bought him a pink leash. So <laughs> Which, by the way, also dogs really like pigs, too. But they want to get them. And so we had to also move our pig because the neighborhood dogs were like, that's so yummy. Oh. <laughs> you know, I was really sad about that, friends. But um, I also learned that pigs are probably one of the most um, intelligent animals on the planet. You know, and so with a very low center of gravity. <laughs> um, so we lost, we lost, it took us 25 years to admit to my mom that we lost the pig in the hills of Berkeley, above Berkeley, and that we couldn't get it back, <laughs> and that only because Pilot wanted to come back were we able to, like, save her research project. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's another story. Okay, so I grew up in lots of different places, and I also want to acknowledge that, like, look, Regionality plays a huge role in our understanding of the American condition, right? And all of this will become really important when we get to that cultural dive. Because having had these experiences, living in these different places, has meant that um, my understanding of what it is to be American is a compound understanding. You know, And I hope for you also a compound understanding of what it means to be um, a scientist in this community, an American in this community, a human in this community, right? And that means understanding different perspectives from upstate New York and, you know, an urban setting. And moving from Oakland to Gainesville was a culture shock. But then moving from Gainesville to Rockville was a culture shock, right? And then Cairo was a culture shock. Um, and I think that all of this is really important because sometimes we can assume that whatever experience we have is normal. And it's just not true, but it's also just a perspective, right? And when we encounter people who have very different perspectives from different lived experiences, we have to make space for those perspectives, both from a scientific point of view and from a humanistic point of view. Um, but one of the things all of this travel helped me understand was that home was where my family was wherever they were. And to this day, my siblings who have lived lots of different places are like, are you going home? And home means wherever my mom and dad are. Mm -hmm. Luckily, my mom and dad live next to me. <laughs> so <laughs> home basically means my house. Um, uh, and that has been really um, fantastic because it has also provided the opportunity to say, listen, if home is an experience as opposed to a location, then I can go anywhere and still feel that connection to home, right? And that's important because as students, as graduate students, as uh, scientists, we go out into the world, and you know what the academic market is like. You go where the job is, right? And so understanding how you can feel at home and make someplace your home is really essential. So uh, I went to University of Maryland. There it is. It doesn't look like this anymore because they're building a metro station right at the M. Um, <laughs> but uh, Maryland has a huge, beautiful campus, much like you guys' campus. And it's also a land-grant institution. So it has many of the same issues and concerns that you guys are probably unpacking here. Um, but it provided me an opportunity to really 
um, live out my dream. And my dream was to become Louis Pasteur, which obviously you see I'm not Louis Pasteur. So uh, <laughs> slight divergence. This is part of my random walk, right? Um, but I got a double degree in cell molecular biology and genetics, but then also in French language and literature. And I did it mostly because after four semesters, my parents were like, what are you finishing? And I was like, Mom and Dad, that's not how the game works. And I was like, you guys should know this. So I added an extra degree so I would have to stay much longer. <laughs> so they were like, ah. um, But it really gave me that interplay between the humanities and science. And I think that that is a really instructive lesson I hope that everybody will have, whether it is... Um, you're working on super quantitative questions, qualitative questions, um, or you're, you know, haven't decided where you want to sit um, in the field of science, please think about how do you make yourself a whole, complete human. And that means understanding theory, understanding classics, from across a whole bunch of different kinds of, of cultures and taking that information and distilling the, the kernels of wisdom from those and then infusing your science with those. You know, I don't think I could have done that without trying to understand the French culture, trying to understand the French language. And I used it later, as I'll show you. And then, you know, if you guys were like me, you had plenty of jobs. Actually, you know, I didn't have any job until I got to college. And I was such a silly person that I didn't realize that you had to turn in a timesheet in order to be paid. <laughs> so I worked for like two and a half months. And I was like, what are these people planning on paying me? And then they were like, you have to turn in your timesheets. And I was like, oh. <laughs> that first payday was fantastic, though. <laughs> um, um, so I worked like uh, in a lab with uh, rats, um, and uh, and that was a great experience. And I worked as a resident assistant. And so, um, if you work in residence life, or if you um, have ever intersected with residence life, you know that that's a lot of interpersonal um, dealing with. Conflict, how do, you, how do you work with students? I had students who held each other hostage. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was fine, it was fine. Um, so all of these kinds of things help to build the skill set that you need in order to be a good scientist. You know, and I'm trying to show you that there's like all of these different ways that you guys can get expertise, right? So it could have been that I just focused and did science, but I would say that the experience that I had being a student events planner or being a resident assistant was as in, uh, influential in helping me figure out how do I program manage science, mm -hmm. right? And if you guys haven't thought about it, on a daily basis, you're mostly a program manager mm -hmm. who does science too, right? All right. Afterwards, I worked in a re uh, recombinant DNA lab, and that was fantastic, except it was all fruit flies. Um, and as you can see, my motor mouth likes to talk. And the fruit flies, unfortunately, didn't talk back to me. And that was a very, like, sad mismatch because I really loved recombinant DNA work. So um, I stopped and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I, you know, I love science. Science kind of loves me. I, I hope, I hope. You know, when I talk to it in the mirror, it does. <laughs> right? You know, but... Um, 
um, what am I going to do? So I started working on Capitol Hill for um, an HIV nonprofit, and the nonprofit was a rep was a, a membership organization of all of the state and territorial AIDS programs. So these are state AIDS directors who manage prevention and care services um, at the state level. So the North Carolina State AIDS Director um, was there, and we were funded predominantly through the Health Resources Services Administration and the Centers for Disease Control to manage prevention and care services. And my job was to develop a peer-based technical assistance program. So how do you find people who would be really helpful in um, helping North Carolinians understand prevention and care? Does that mean looking for New Yorkers who can tell them what to do? No. <laughs> right? Because the social context, the economic context are different. And so it was really a understanding how positionality was really important within a technical context, within a you know qualitative and quantitative context. And so I did that for a while, and they were like, hey, you did this in the U.S., now do it abroad. And I said, hey, all right, you paying for the tickets? I'm going. <laughs> so this is Legos in the background, what you can see here. And um, I used to uh, make slide decks and ask people, you know, where do most Africans live? <laughs> because National Geographic has sometimes done a number on people, especially on Americans. We think that, like, everybody's living in a hut. But, like... Like something like 85 or 90% of Africans are living in cities, just like this, in high-rise apartment buildings, much like New Yorkers, right? And so our understanding of what it means to be um, in environments uh, can totally change by actually seeing the world. And um, because I was doing work there, I really saw firsthand the impact of things like polio, malaria, and HIV, and other infectious diseases on human populations in ways that we have been so fortunate as a nation not to see in the last 40 years, except with COVID, right? Um, but imagine that on the way to work, you see people who have such debilitating disorders that the only way that they can get around is riding on a skateboard, right? And it was so debilitating that the colleagues that I work with, people who had been working for 40 years in public health, were struck dumb by what they were seeing. And when they got to the office, I'd be like, okay, now they're ready for your expert opinion. And they would be like, uh, I'm still processing. You know? And so I... I say that to say that there are experiences that you can theoretically know about that when you see them are so visceral that they reprogram the way that you think about situations. And this reprogrammed the way that I thought about infectious disease. I had studied it as, a, as an undergrad. Um, I knew about it from a policy perspective, you know, working on Capitol Hill, but all of a sudden it was right in my face and it was immediate. And I had to develop different strategies to kind of think through and process and unpack what I was seeing so that I could do good work. <clears throat> and so after a while, 
of doing that work, I kind of got exhausted. As you guys can imagine, you know, you know, sometimes like you do good work, but it's exhausting work. And I think every uh, educator knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like you reach the moment where you're like, I love you, but I also need Calgon to take me away. Right? And <laughs> good, good. I'm glad people are like, yeah. So for me, it was that I had a um, I had a boss who, and I I feel like I'm I'm sorry. I think you guys are hearing this again, but I had a boss who would be like, as soon as you come back to the U.S., you need to be back in the office. And I was working 20 hours a week when I was abroad. So be away for three weeks, working 20 hours a day. Um, and um, literally, like, part of the work was scientific. But part of the work is the herding cats of getting people who are seeing things who are like, I know what life is like abroad. I lived in Norway. And I'm like, okay. But what you're seeing is not Norway. Right. <laughs> what you're seeing is something very different, right? And their cognitive dissonance with their their self-perception as experts and they're experiencing something that was novel and, um, quite honestly, um, world-bending for them. So um, I would take vacations on the way back home to use up all of my comp time. And on one vacation, I met this very nice Danish boy who was like, who was like, hey, I'll take you around to see some things because downtown Copenhagen, if you've been there, is very small. So I was like, show me something else. Um, and um, I ended up marrying said Danish boy and thinking about, uh, and then living there for three years. Um, and what he asked of me was to learn to dance before we were And that was exceptionally important in my scientific journey. And the reason why, as you can see, it means to get to know the Danish people. And so what he was asking of me was not just come, live an expat life. You know, he was in school, so he wanted to finish his um, uh business law education, Copenhagen Business School, um, but it was really to try to understand why, what is the social construction that we're seeing? What are the societal norms that are being enforced, right? How do those differ from what we see as Americans and what we experience as Americans? Um, and I was saying earlier that the best gift you can give yourself is to go abroad for a little while. Because you'll never truly know what it means to be American unless you go abroad and divorce yourself from the things that are so comfortable in this country or so distracting in this country. And then when you come back, both while you're abroad and when you come back, you will have different perspectives on what it means to be American. And for my work, both thinking about environmental stressors, but then also in terms of thinking about um, evolutionary processes, this was incredibly important. So I observed how culture and lifestyle impact human health. Um, I looked at structural differences, you know, the way that their healthcare system is set up, and compared that to what I knew about how the American healthcare system was set up. And I had a better understanding of what it meant to be an immigrant because <laughs> there's quite a discussion going on in Europe about what it means to be an immigrant, right? What it means to be the other. And, you know, especially as Americans, sometimes we're like, 
what? <laughs> Why am I the other? <laughs> I'm the, you know, I'm the norm, you know? And so I remember, like, engaging with... Uh, Denmark is such an accessible place. So I remember, like, engaging with, like, members of parliament and being like, what are you talking about? You know, like, like all with all the overconfidence of an American. <laughs> and being like, afterwards, my, my husband was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, <laughs> my bad, you know, but... Here we are, like, I was like, I'm gonna shoot my shot. And I did. Um, and what we talked about was like, what does it mean to be from some culture? What role does cultural, does a cultural lexicon play in understanding belongingness? And while I was there, because this is the work of my afternoons and evenings. I needed something to do all day. And so I worked on a biochemistry master's um, <clears throat> with um, looking at sodium potassium pumps. So looking using a yeast model system to do site-directed mutagenesis and really try to understand where the um, second binding site in the sodium potassium pump is and how we can use things like orbane binding in order to, uh, to elucidate that structure where uh, this system is um, very uh, not amenable to crystallization. Um, but that was just something I did because, you know, some people are meant to have a life of leisure. That's not me, unfortunately. I'm really sad about that because I feel like life of leisure would have been amazing. So um, at the time, I thought, okay, well, I should think about like what, what I want to do next. And I definitely knew I wanted to come home. So I went to the University of Arizona. My parents were like, what are you doing? Because my parents live in Maryland. Um, but um, at the University of Arizona, I had an opportunity to really take all of the things that I had seen in West Africa, take all of the cultural expertise, let's put some air quotes on that, cultural understandings that I'd gotten in Denmark and try to put those together and try to understand these things from a scientific evolutionary basis um, to understand the relationships between um, populations. And so I started uh, thinking about things like estimating African continental diversity. And um, so I, I did things like look at uh, African populations. And what you're seeing here is this is a, a um, geog uh, geological kind of, of feature map of Africa. But overlaid onto it is the areas where tribes, the, the zones of tribes and nations. Right, so not countries, but where tribes and nations, and I don't know if you can really see it, but it's just so elegant because it looks a lot like if we were talking about any other species. Um, and that is in areas where there's low resources, populations have much larger ecological zones, right? And in places where there's lots of resources, this is really condensed and people are living in very small ecological zones. And so it started to, to make to remind me, because sometimes we all need reminders of the of the foundations, which is humans are just another species on this planet. You know, and I have to remind myself of that every day because there is, especially in evolutionary biology, it's like <laughs> one rules for us and one set of rules for everybody else, right? Um, 
and it reminds me that actually no. So uh, one of the outcomes of this analysis though was that the lack of information that we had was really affecting things like natural selection, epidemiological assessments, and population genomic um, historical reconstructions because to date almost every study that you'll see looks at this population here. This had map, actually this is, there's there's a human genome diversity panel population as well, the same as Yoruba population, right? And to be African is assumed to be right from right here. And so the question is, is like, is this truly representative of the diversity that we're seeing on this massive continent that is three times the size of the United States? Or no? No. Bingo, bongo, bingo. <laughs> yes. So, um, so that's kind of where we started. You know, it was like, man, if we don't have the data, how can we use um, other pieces of information to try to understand what the data could be? Um, and then, um, then we started asking, well, you know, if you look in the literature, I don't know if you guys have read um, African genomic uh, diversity literature, but they're like, hey, no worries, you can just look at linguistic families and be like, oh yeah, those people are totally like Nilo-Saharan or whatever it is, you know, and you can predict their genomics based on what languages they speak, which is really interesting because I think that that probably has a lot of resonance for us as Americans because in general, we're mostly American speak I mean, uh, English speakers with slight, you know, distribution of other kinds of languages. But Africans are some of the most linguistically diverse populations on the planet, right? And so <laughs> the average African is speaking between four and six languages, mm -hmm. right? So what does this mean? So we started to look at populations and say, we looked at, I tried to select three populations that were living in what we call these hybrid zones. That is, they were hybrids between um, uh, uh, ecological niches. And, um, and then we tried to see whether along these ecological niches that you actually could predict. So each one of these belongs to what should be particularly a language family. Um, all wholly in, um, encapsulated. And so, I don't know if I, yep, okay, so, okay, so what you can see here is these are these three families, and in each case, uh, what, you're, what you're seeing here on this, uh, is this right side? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right side. <laughs> um, what you're seeing here is um, a language evolution scale. And the language evolution scale um, suggests how pervasively used that language is. Does it have theater plays written in it? I mean, like, can you find theater plays? Or is it a language that people use in the marketplace as a sort of pidgin or a creole language, right? And the, um, the supposition among linguists is that these languages, um, and particularly uh, the ones that sit here in these um, in these midsections, all should have enough um, diversity to, I mean, it should have enough uh, uh, depth to explain the diversity of genetic variation that we see. But in fact, that's not the case. And even though we have two of them that are relatively um, 
medium age languages that when we survey those populations they actually uh, speak that as a third or fourth option to the languages that they speak. And so we're like, okay, linguistic, linguistic classification is not sufficient to constrain between group variation um, and try to understand it and use it as a proxy for genomic identity. So that means we're kind of at the drawing, back at the drawing board. But it means that all of these things that have been workhorses for um, the hand-waving that we've done, <laughs> and I will say, honestly, what I think is often the sloppy science that we've done in African and non-European and Western contexts um, needs to stop. So uh, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. That was, <laughs> I was on my soapbox. I'm off now. Um, so we also tried other kinds of methods. And as I told you guys, I'm really excited about thinking about interdisciplinary ways to look at things. So previously we looked at like sort of language models and how those could be used. And here we're looking at physics and entropy and trying to think about how entropy can be used as a metric to understand information content along the genome and to use it as a metric to understand and annotate genomes, especially in non-model systems where, um, where we don't have good scaffolds for, um, for gene sequencing. And so that's some of the work that I did here, looking at information content across human genomes. Um, and we're able to identify um, particular features. And depending on the scale of the window of the sliding um, uh, entropy scale we use, we can identify um, um, enhancer elements, definitely genes, a whole bunch of different things. And so we can use it as a quick and dirty way to understand. Uh, genomic uh, gene structures um, and populations. But we can also use this to identify differences between populations and we started to use this approach to look at um, individual genomes uh, in major databases to look for differences um, either in structural rearrangements or other kinds of things um, but identified through entropy. Okay. So I went to Drexel after Arizona because me and that lovely Danish guy didn't work out. <laughs> but don't worry, this story is a happy ending. Um, <laughs> uh, so I went to Drexel. He went back to he went to Scandinavia. He lives in Sweden. I can give you his address. <laughs> He's a lovely man. <laughs> Um, okay, so I went to Drexel and I was really interested in biomedical science because what I realized is that my interests were getting closer and closer and closer to biomedicine, right? And I love evolutionary biology. I think that a little bit of it can go everywhere. So I took it to Drexel. And um, at Drexel, my dissertation work was really kind of focused on some of these like studying complex diseases because what I realized from my time in Arizona was that some of the really elegant stories had already been told. And because those elegant stories had been told, I really only had <laughs> the complicated ones that people didn't want to touch, right? And so I started thinking, I was like, what is something that's complicated and yet really interesting to people intuitively? And so I started looking at addiction phenotypes. Uh, I actually called it the less than zero project for a long time, which is embarrassing. You guys know what less than zero is? So like, I, okay, so yesterday I was saying 
I made this Game of Thrones joke at an institution, and like it like went over like lead balloons because people were like, we don't watch Game of Thrones, and I was like, that's Less Than Zero was a movie with like was the guy who played Iron Man? That guy was in. Yeah, that guy was in. Yeah, he was a drug addict. Um, anyway. In real life. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's over yeah. now. It's over now. I was thinking more about his movie persona. <laughs> I don't want to stigmatize him as me, whatever. So, okay, so I was looking at, like, cocaine, heroin, morphine, alcohol, these drug phenotypes um, in populations. And the initial um, observation was that these drug phenotypes, even though... Um, they start out as just dysregulation of metabolic pathways. They quickly progress to immune, mobility, and um, psychotropic effects, right? And we see in long-term substance abusers a convergence of phenotypes around um, a particular set of core um, dysregulations. And so we wanted to understand, like, why is that happening? Is it because all of these drugs are using the same pathways? Is it happening because there's the same architecture of disease in all of them? Is it, why is it happening, right? And so I started by trying to understand what was happening first in these three classes, these three drug families. And what we identified was that they actually are sitting in these drug hotspots, what I call addiction hotspots. And I constrained the size of the location of the hotspot um, to 1 to 1.5 centimorgans, which is, um, <clears throat> if you're a fan of recombinant DNA, back to my days at Arizona, uh, Maryland, is the typical unit of recombination um, in the human genome, right? So if you have things that are farther than about a centimorgan away from each other, then they are able to reassort during um, during reproductive, you know, during mating, and therefore we're, uh, you lose the signature of those potential uh, uh, clusters of mutations. And so I wanted to try to understand whether we had something that was small, um, potentially heritable together, and influencing populations, because we do know that many addiction phenotypes run in families, and that suggests that there is a, a heritable architecture underlying those traits. So that's where I started. Um, when we mapped these onto actual biological pathways, what we found is that the vast majority of them sat in the postsynaptic cleft, right? And so we were like, okay, is this by chance that you can see all of these shaded ones um, are sitting in a postsynaptic cleft? And the shading refers to which hotspot they come from. And we we're like, wow, okay, so we're seeing something. but. Then my advisor was like, okay, Latifa, cool, 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 cool. You know, you're maybe a third of the way to a dissertation. But, um, <laughs> but what about, like, what about people's mental health? Like, is, are they, like, is this related to um, their mental health because they're, like, self-medicating? Mm -hmm. Or are they, um, or is the medication, or... Are they taking the drugs and the drugs are causing them to, you know, have these, you know, perturbations? And I was like, hmm, challenge accepted. So I started to try to look at, um, at the relationship between now using the same approach because 
the great thing about this approach is that I can look at as many genes as I want to. So I can take every gene that has been identified as participating in schizophrenia, depression, um, and bipolar disorder, and map those on the genome with all of these um, uh, addiction-related uh, genes and try to identify areas that where these genes are sitting, you know, in shared neighborhoods. And so one of the things that was really cool is that all of a sudden we're going from thinking about genes as beads on a strand or thinking about genes um, as, you know, just on chromosome locations by chance and instead starting to think about them as living in functional neighborhoods, which I really like because in D.C. everything is a neighborhood, right? Georgetown's a neighborhood. Adams Morgan's a neighborhood. And they each have their own special cultural feel. And these all each have their own special functional feel. Um, so I did that, and because I love evolution, I was like, but why not immunity though, right? And so I started to look at um, the intersection of addiction, mental health genes, and immunity. Um, and once we started looking at those, we actually saw that we could predict some of the variation that we saw in, um, in alleles participating at these hotspots by uh, the long-term habitation of those populations in either tropical or non-tropical zones. And okay, it's not the weather, it's how much infectious disease are in tropical versus non-tropical zones, right? And um, if you have hung out with any evolutionary biologist for a while, they'll tell you that Haldane, who's one of our fancy fathers, um, says that um, uh, infectious disease is probably the primary driver of evolution in human populations. So I was like, yes, this is what I was seeing in West Africa, this is what I was studying in Arizona, and now here I was starting to see signatures of that in a complex disease phenotype using a systems biology approach, um, but and um, all done in computational analyses together. And so all of a sudden I was like, boom, boom, boom. Like I could feel the dominoes. And I was like, yes. Um, so that's what I did. And then finally I came to Howard. I'm gonna try to hurry up, because I, 10 minutes, okay. Um, and then Howard, um, you know what? Let's skip this. We'll talk about this later. I promise I won't let you guys forget that I'm examining African ancestry. And I'm sure you guys care about this. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> and this is my son. But when he was like a little bit younger. He's seven now. But I like that he's wearing a hat shirt. Thank you guys. More thoughts? You guys can, you know, I hope you guys see that like, these are the themes, even though like I do, when you look at my CD, it's like, psh, like it feels like buckshot. But hopefully you can see that there's like threads that weave in and out, you know, not ever going to get too far from evolutionary biology. I'm never going to get too far from thinking about how do we analyze data and how can we take data methods from other fields and use those to better understand the human condition. And I'm never going to get too far from having seen things in the world trying to understand what is, the, what is the significance and implication of those things. So I hope from that, you will also think about what are those common threads in your work? 
and how do they weave in and out. And also give yourself the freedom to do whatever you really like doing, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go first. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, you, yesterday you mentioned you were an IGERT student, mm -hmm. and the GES used to have an IGERT program, and now it has the new version of IGERT mm -hmm. energy. Yeah. Um, so, and you've clearly very well like demonstrated your interdisciplinary work as you know past your graduate mm -hmm. research. Can you talk a little bit about? your experience as an IGERT student and how that informed your interdisciplinary approaches yeah. or, or not or you know whatever. Absolutely. So IGERT was totally fundamental. The IGERT that I had, um, the IGERT program that I participated in was functional genomics, computational biology, and evolutionary biology. Right? And so we were people who were from different sides of campus, some of them were in the medical school, some of them were you know, um, entomologists, all thinking about these different kinds of questions, but constantly challenging each other to think about methods. And I will say that my love of any field's methods comes directly from the IGERT interaction. The experience of doing rotations in labs, which we did, directly impacted my sense of how do I communicate between um, disciplines, right? And so I can't express to you how important it is also to have a group of people who are maybe not in your department, who you can still bounce ideas against, who still will sharpen your, your blade, your intellectual blade, and who are not in direct competition with you for whatever interdepartmental perception of competition that exists. And so those people who um, were in that fellowship are my most dear academic friends. And I hope that you guys, as you progress through your program, will find the same. Because the network that you form, these brothers and sisters in the struggle, <laughs> in the intellectual struggle, you know, the ones who invite you over to their house for pizza, you know, and make sure that you got home safely, you know, from happy hour. <laughs> I'm trying to be real, you guys. <laughs> you know, those people are the people that 10 years from now are going to be telling you, hey, there's a job over here. There's an opportunity over here. 20 years from now, they're going to be like, I have all of these really great students. I'm going to send you some great students because I know you need them. Right? I could not imagine doing the kind of interdisciplinary work that I do without the family that Arizona brought to me. Mm -hmm. um, may I ask you kind of a vulnerable question? Sure. Um, uh, in this interdisciplinary space of interdisciplinarity and the sort of scattershot, your words, mm -hmm. uh, CV, and I know you've woven a really lovely tale that links mm -hmm. the scatters, but has it ever been a, like a challenge for you or a hindrance in getting a position? Because Interdisciplinarity is awesome in a lot of places, and, and it doesn't fit well in others. And I just wonder if you've had any challenges sure. to get to where you are, mm -hmm. because like sort of the flip side yeah. of your yeah. question almost. Sure. So, um, uh, yes, I would say yes and no. I mean, the reality is, is that if I bring in money, people are much less concerned about the scattered shot of my CV <laughs> than, than if I don't. Right. right? But also. Um, I am currently in a clinical department, so most of my department is a functioning 
pediatric practice. Yes, MDs. Right. And so MDs, and they care less what I do, you know. And I could honestly care less sometimes about what they do, you know, just because I don't understand what they do. I'm not good enough for that. Um, so I spend a lot of time thinking, should I just focus on one discipline, you know? And I could do that, but I was like, look, I have one life. And what I want to do, what makes me want to get up in the morning, what makes me want to stay up late and, you know, perfect my talk is the interdisciplinarity of it, the new opportunities of it. And so I have kind of gotten to the point where I said, listen, whatever my career is, is what it's going to be, you know, but I'm going to do and try to contribute to make the uh, intellectual contributions to things that I think are important. You know, and everybody has to decide for themselves where they want to fit into the spectrum of, like, I work on one thing, I work on everything. But um, it also provides these opportunities. Like, I'm firmly convinced that if I only worked on um, uh, adaptations to malaria, I wouldn't be here. Right? And so, yes, have I killed opportunities to go talk about adaptations to malaria in some purist department? Probably. But I opened the door for these opportunities, which is, to me, you guys are pretty fantastic. Oh. <laughs> you know? But, you know, when you inhabit the body and the skin color and the experience that I do, you have to, at some point, give yourself permission to do what the heck you want to do. Because otherwise, I'll be like, well, what does my department chair want? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they want me to become a pediatrician and earn more money for the program, no doubt. You know? I can't do that, though. <laughs> you know? So I just, like, I take what opportunities I have, and I try to um, use them in ways that are both helpful to me and helpful to the people who are coming after me. And... That's all I think that we can focus on, you know. There's always going to be somebody who doesn't like me because I don't inhabit the form that they want me to inhabit. And I've experienced that my whole career. Not my concern, you know. That's giving them way too much power. Why should somebody else have the power to tell me what I should study? And how did that work for you on the job market? Um, it was actually fine. So this okay. is the interesting thing is that, like, look, when you're on the job market, sometimes it's about a position that's really open, and sometimes it's about a position that's kind of like, yeah. you know, I don't want to, <laughs> there's grad students in the room, I don't want to be, it, the job market is real, and every job is real. But, um, <laughs> but people want a good story, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And the question is, are you good at telling whatever story that you have, or not? Mm -hmm. If you're not good at telling that story, which is why yesterday I was telling grad students, like, if you think that you're going to graduate but you're not going to defenses and listening to how other people talk about mm -hmm. their work, then you have a problem. Mm -hmm. Go. Some of them are going to be great and some of them are not going to be so But they're going to show you. It's like, you know, when they tell writers, like, you can't write without reading. Mm -hmm. You can't do our discipline without understanding how to present it, right? And one thing I will say is that I've never had, I've never had a lack of opportunities. You know, 
because I do this kind of work, I got invited to be on um, Chan Zuckerberg's uh, representative research board. And I'm on their single cell advisory board. And I talk with them all the time, and I get to decide who they give their, you know, $330 million in science funding to every year. So the question is, is like, am I killing my blessings? Or am I opening myself up to those blessings? Mm -hmm. You know, open yourself up to your blessings, to your opportunities. You know, I don't mean to couch this in religious talk. Like, open yourself up to the opportunities that the universe has for you. You know? You know, and so I can never tell because yeah. when you when you inhabit a certain kind of body, you right. can't tell whether people don't like the things you're saying because of the implications of the work, because the person who's presenting the work, because I didn't go to Harvard, or what. But part of being an academic, like part of fully stepping into an adulthood, is being like I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I went mm-hmm. to Berkeley last fall, and a colleague of mine was like, how can you tweet the things you tweet? And I was, he's like, because they're kind of political. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I mean, I do care. Like, I care about humanity deeply. But I was also like, who am I serving by not telling my truth? Who are you serving by not telling your truth? You know, unless your truth is truly terrible and you're like inside like reincarnation of Pol Pot, like tell your truth. Tell your truth. If you're if you're Pol Pot, like you know, you know, tell your truth. The world needs to hear it, and it humanizes you. Yeah. The same way I tell students all the time, like I left Arizona, I got a divorce, my advisor got a divorce. And we couldn't agree on my dissertation, and I left. Yeah. You know, and I tell people not because I'm proud of it. There's nothing to be proud of in that situation. But I try to tell people because when you're in the struggle, you assume that you're the only warrior in that struggle. Mm-hmm. I want you to know that every single one of us, every faculty who's accomplished something, has struggled somewhere along the way. You know, and faculty, we got to be more honest about the struggles we experience. Those are badges of honor. Those are successes. You know, and I try to think about it from an evolutionary perspective, like, yeah, nothing but survival here. (laughs) Right? I mean, like, that and having an F1. There's only two goals, right? (laughs) Two goals, folks. Self-actualization and an F1, you know? Okay, with that I need to interject because it it is one of, a few minutes after one, I'm sorry, Um, but we should switch from our formal colloquium.